Welcome to the Sciences Po Energy Podcast. My name is Philip Forster, and today I'll be speaking to Anne-Sophie Corbeau, who is a global research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. Her research focuses on hydrogen and natural gas. Anne-Sophie has over 20 years of experience in the energy industry and is a recognized expert on natural gas. She is the author of many publications focusing on it, but also energy markets, Asia, China, India, and Africa. Prior to joining the center, Ms. Corbeau was the senior leader and head of gas analysis at BP, where she was responsible for advising the leadership team on gas market developments and long-term pricing assumptions. As part of the economic and energy insights team, she was leading the energy outlooks analysis on gas industry, nuclear, and hydrogen. In shorter words, she is the perfect person to speak to concerning the energy security prospects in light of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We will discuss today the consequences of the existing and potential future sanctions on energy security, with a particular focus on the European continent. This episode was recorded on Thursday, the 17th of March, 2022. Hello, Anne-Sophie Corbeau. Thank you for joining us today on the Science for Energy podcast to speak about the energy security prospects in light of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Your lecture on energy security at Science Po, and so the perfect person to talk to regarding this matter. It is great to have you with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. All right, let's dive right into the content because there's a lot to discuss today. Since the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a plethora of sanctions have been imposed. They include the stop of the certification of Nord Stream 2, the US embargo on Russian oil and other energy products, a threat to stop Nord Stream 1, not just from the Russian regime, but also from the German opposition, Royal Dutch Shell terminating all gas imports from Russia, but also other energy companies divesting their assets from Russia entirely. Which ones are the more difficult ones to handle from an energy security perspective, or is it more the combination of them all that's challenging? I think it's important to put things back in context. I mean, first of all, even before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia started, I mean, the markets, the commodity markets were tight or even extremely tight in the case of natural gas and coal, tight in the case of oil. And this is reflected by the very high prices that we have observed for all these commodities. I mean, natural gas prices are at levels that I never thought would be possible to reach in my lifetime. $60 per MMBTU, on average, I mean, we are seeing prices in Europe at about $6 per MMBTU. So we have seen prices increasing by a factor of 10 -fold. The second thing also to understand is that what is making these prices particularly special is that Russia, is an important exporter of all these commodities, oil, natural gas, and coal. Russia is a very important exporter of oil, so it exports about 5 million barrels per day of crude oil, about 3 million barrels per day of products. For oil, it's about 50-50 towards Europe, towards Asia. It's a very important exporter of natural gas. I think everybody has heard about that. It exports about 155 billion cubic meters of natural gas or by pipeline and by LNG to the European Union, which represents about 40% of the European Union's gas consumption. So this is a very important number. And also, Russia exports a lot of coal as well. It's about 16% of global coal trade. 
So when you are taking everything together, it's an important country for all the commodities. Now, you asked me about specific things. So Nord Stream 2, in my opinion, is a non-event because this pipeline to start with was not even operating. So it doesn't change anything. Nord Stream 1, however, is much more important from the gas perspective because it was already operating at capacity and this pipeline is delivering about 55 billion cubic meters of natural gas towards Europe. So if Nord Stream 1 was going to be, or the supplies were going to be stopped, then we will see an immediate disruption of about one third of total gas supplies to Europe. So that's quite significant number, which will be very difficult to replace. The United States has acted very fast, and it's very important to understand that you know all these sanctions. I mean, there are a variety of sanctions. I mean, we are talking here about the ones which are targeting the energy, but the sanctions have happened at a very, very rapid pace. I, I don't think you know the Russians were expecting such a rapid reaction from the US, the UK, the European Union, Japan, and Korea. It has happened very fast. So the US has targeted all energy supplies, but they can afford that because this is a country which produces a lot of oil, of coal, of natural gas, so they can allow themselves to do that. The real question is whether the European Union or European countries in general, let's include, you know, the UK, for example, are going to target all these energy products. We have already seen that, you know, they are going into the direction of trying to reduce their imports of Russian commodities, but they have not yet banned them. So there is an important distinction. And from an energy security perspective, you know, there is this dual question. Is it Russia, which is going to stop exporting, for example, natural gas to Europe? Or is it European countries which are going to say, well, I mean, we stop now. We ban all imports of Russian gas from now. And that duality is particularly important. You have mentioned before the higher prices and, uh, and other consequences that come with this. What else can we expect from, from it? Or have you already seen, perhaps? Uh, I'm talking about supply chain disruptions and, and other production of industries, but also the food industry and perhaps even the default of companies. As I mentioned, I mean, the prices and the very high commodity prices were already here before this invasion started. What this invasion has done is to create a pure havoc on the market and create a volatility that nobody has ever seen. I mean, just to give you an example, uh, gas prices in Europe at some point last week were reaching about $400 per barrel, or the equivalent of $400 per barrel. This is record high. I mean, when you compare that to oil or coal, I mean, this is really much higher. And on top of that, the volatility was such that at some point, I've seen the price of gas increasing by $100 per barrel per day, in one day. So it was absolute panic. And this is, you know, these prices are no longer reflecting just the fundamental. This is panic. This is fear, which is driving, you know, the commodity speculation. So that's an important thing to take into account. As you mentioned, some companies are already been affected by this price shock. In the United Kingdom, a certain number of energy suppliers have gone bankrupt. 
cell here to be replaced. So this is a direct impact. But we have seen also in general uh, a lot of companies being impacted by the very high energy prices, you know, whether it's oil, whether it's natural gas, whether it's coal. So some of them have tried to switch from one commodity to another, and others have simply reduced their industrial production. Now, when we are looking at food, and this is something which is particularly worrisome, I mean, there are two things to take into account. The first one is that the high energy costs are directly reflected onto the cost of food products. I mean, there is a direct relationship, and this is why in our supermarkets, I mean, every day we see that, you know, the price of pasta, the price of rice, the price of vegetables are increasing step by step. So that's the first factor. But the second one, which may also be coming, is the fact that Ukraine and Russia are very important food producers. So that can have an effect again. And they are not only important food producers, they are also important producers of fertilizer products. So the impact of energy prices onto fertilizer products, we have already seen that happening. We have also seen companies like Kiara stopping their production of fertilizer products last year at some point because the price of gas was just too high. So we might have here a triple one with energy prices, the fact that fertilizer products are becoming more expensive, and the fact that we might have a disruption from food products coming from Russia and Ukraine. And that is particularly worrisome. Let's not forget that you know, about a decade ago, uh, the upstream was kind of triggered by you know, problems with the cost of food. So this might again create a lot of unrest in developed and developing countries alike. Even in France, you know, where we are right now, I mean, we can see that the cost of food, the, price, the prices that people are paying, is a concern for a lot of businesses and citizens alike. Thank you. Let's now turn to the observable and expected shifts in energy policy after the invasion. Many countries and experts have since the beginning of the invasion scratched their heads on how to turn away from Russian energy products and decrease the dependence, particularly on Russian gas, oil and coal. The European Commission, for example, wants the EU to become energy independent from Russia well before 2030. Usually, these goals come with different objectives for different time frames, and it would be great to discuss them today. Let's perhaps first focus on, on this year, up until the winter of 2023. How can Europe turn away from Russian gas, oil and coal as far as possible until then, and what is the percentage of previous Russian energy imports that can be substituted by them. So when you are looking at uh, what the International Energy Agency and what the European Commission have published over the past couple of weeks, I mean, this is mostly focusing on one thing, on natural gas, because of the very high dependency of Europe on Russian natural gas, about 40% of the total consumption. While for oil, this is only 27% of imports, and for coal, it's also much lower. So, you know, they are really focusing on natural gas. However, in their analysis, I mean, they are slightly different in terms of how much can be achieved by the end of this year. I mean, a year is a very short time frame. So the International Energy Agency has come up with an analysis which says the European Union should be able to decrease its Russian imports by one third. The European Commission has said two thirds. So they are different bits and pieces in terms of the analysis here. Now, let's understand and analyze a little bit better what the European Commission is saying. They are saying two things, which are really, I mean, in the core of energy security. 
il y aura finalement three different items, il y aura finalement domaine et il y aura finalement surtaille. In terms of domain, what you can do is domain restraint. So, for example, there are some people to reduce their thermostat by about one degree in order to save energy. That's one thing. You can also switch to different types of energy. So, they are thinking about increasing the bioemission production. They are also thinking about increasing the heat pumps. They are also thinking about increasing uh, renewable production. So, finding something rather than material. And then you move to the supply side. And here they are looking at two different items. First, increasing alternative pattern suppliers, and second, increasing the amount of energy that Europe can attract. For the pipeline suppliers, both the IAEA and the European Commission have about the same estimate, which is about 10 billion cubic meters. I think this is achievable, taking into account an increase in gas production coming from the Netherlands, even though, you know, Groningen was supposed to be the commission of stock production by the end of the year. I think there is probably a change of mind on this one. More gas coming from Norway, maybe more gas coming from Algeria, from Azerbaijan, but I, this is relatively limiting, which is why I think, you know, the assumption of about 10 billion cubic meters. So 10 billion cubic meters, just to give you an idea, European consumption, the total European consumption, including Turkey and the UK, is about 540 billion cubic meters. So this is a relatively small number. The big piece is really about energy. And here, this is where the European Commission and the IEA diverge. I mean, the said about plus 20 BCM, the European Commission said plus 50 billion cubic meters. So in 2021, European Union's energy imports were 80 billion cubic meters. If you increase that by 50 BCM, you see that this is quite a big number. That means that the European Union needs to import 130 billion cubic meters of energy. How can we do that? Well, we can do that by doing two things. First, attracting the incremental LNG supply which is going to pop to the market in 2022, coming from new facilities, in particular coming from facilities in the United States. And the second one, which is a little bit more tricky, is attracting that energy away from the other markets, in particular Asia, but also Latin America. In my opinion, this is going to be challenging, except if we are seeing either a voluntary or an involuntary demand destruction, gas demand destruction. So, I think there is a possibility that the Latin American energy imports are going to be lower in 2022 because in 2021 they were particularly high due to the drought in Brazil. So in order to replace, you know, hydro, Brazil had to import a lot of energy in order to use gas in the gas market. That may come down. But the tricky bit is really to attract this energy away from Asia. And we might have two things. We might have demand destruction because gas prices are justified. Right now, gas prices are about $35 per annum BTU. This is so expensive for countries like Bangladesh, Pakistan, Thailand, very, very expensive. I mean, these countries, you know, their kind of level of affordability is between 6 and $8 per annum BTU. I mean, above 10, this is already too expensive. Can you imagine above $30 per annum BTU of how expensive it is? And these countries have been relying, you know, not only on long-term contracts, but crucially also on spot energy cargoes that they were buying for tender. So now this is going becoming difficult for them. But the second thing which can happen is that solidarity with Europe coming from the traditional big importers of LNG. 
China, Japan, Korea. All together, they represent about 270 billion cubic meters of LNG. This is about half of the global LNG trade. If they can reduce their consumption by using more coal, more nuclear, more renewable, crucially also importing more Russian gas by pipeline in China, then indeed, I mean, we may be able to have more LNG coming to Europe, but this is going to be extremely challenging because what you have to keep in mind is that Russian LNG imports have been on an upward trend year by year over the past decade. So suddenly we would have a reversal of the situation. And in particular in China, China has been increasing its LNG imports by between 10 to 20 billion cubic meters every year. So you are asking China not only to stop, but eventually to reduce its energy imports in 2022. So that's a big ask, I have to say. The IAS um, also suggested um, other um, recommendations, such as fuel switching particularly. And I'm wondering what the role of coal and nuclear can play in, in, in this field. And I'm looking in particular at countries like Germany, but also France. So on coal, I mean, it's fair to say that coal is already back. Coal has been back in 2021. I mean, there was, of course, the economic growth, but in general, at some point, I mean, gas was becoming so expensive that it was making sense to switch to coal-fired generation. What we are seeing now is really a policy shift. Before, natural gas was seen as a bridge in order to remove coal from the equation in the gas-fired generation in Europe. And gas was going to be used exactly for that, also as a complement to renewable. Now, this whole story, which was very much used with the whole taxonomy debate, is just gone. I mean, now we are going to double down on renewable. We are going to keep coal, maybe revive some coal in some places, such as you know, Germany, Italy. We are going to keep coal in Eastern Europe, but we are not going to increase our gas consumption. So, the debate that was going on two months ago on the taxonomy has just completely disappeared. On nuclear, that's an interesting one. Uh, the IEA indeed said that we can use additional nuclear this year in order to replace natural gas. I completely disagree. In my opinion, nuclear generation in 2022 and probably in 2023 is going to decrease compared to 2021. Why? For two very simple reasons. The first one is that IEA is expecting its nuclear generation to go down in 2022. For several reasons, because of the 10-year inspections, also because of uh, the suspicion of corrosion in a certain number of nuclear power plants. So that means that nuclear generation in, in, in France is going to decrease, I mean, according to EDF, from 360 terawatt hours in 2021 to anywhere between 295 to 200. 15, 15, sorry, in 2022. So that's a big decrease. And the second thing which is also happening, as you mentioned, is the decommissioning of the nuclear power plants in Germany, which is also going to have an impact, which I estimate is going to be about 30 terawatt hours less. So if you put everything together, I estimate that in 2022 we are going to see about 90 terawatt hours less of nuclear generation in the European Union. So rather than you know helping, it's actually an additional problem to solve. And how can we solve that? I think you know policymakers in 
European General need to have second thoughts about nuclear and look carefully about nuclear and do a systematic inspection of all the nuclear power plants which are currently operating and say, okay, are they safe to operate? Because we are not joking about the safety of operations, but are they safe to operate? Okay, if they are, let's continue to operate them. Policy decisions like, you know, what Germany did and close the four gigawatt of nuclear power plants at the end of December of 2021. I am sorry, but is that really the best thing that you could do? I mean, you are closing four gigawatt of power plants which are operating very well, and you replace that with coal. I mean, from an environmental point of view, it's just completely crazy. So I think what countries should be doing is that look carefully at the next decommissioning of nuclear power plants, which are going to happen in Germany, but also in Belgium, and determine whether they really want to go down that path. This is not going to be easy to basically reverse those decisions for two reasons. The first one is that we need to have qualified workers. And the second one is that we need to order the fuel in advance. And you know, the fuel can be very specific for each nuclear power plant. If we wanted, we may also be able to restart the power plants which have been decommissioned, but you need to tackle these two changes on top of, of course, you know, reversing the policies, the regulations, and all these things. But I think, you know, people should carefully think about nuclear in Europe, not only about the plants which are going to be decommissioned during this decade, and there are a few of them, but also to think about building additional nuclear power plants for the countries which are willing. I, I can understand that not everybody wants to be building new nuclear power plants, but you know, if you want, then you, you need to act now because you know, even if we start building the nuclear power plants now, they are unlikely to be ready before 2030. So you need to fast them. The IEA also mentioned that they would like to encourage countries to temporarily have thermostat adjustments or reductions in, in the temperature in houses. How could countries communicate this and what are other options in, on the demand side that are really necessary in the upcoming 10 months? Well, I don't know whether you're watching uh, French TV, but I can say every single day on the news at uh, 8 p.m., I mean, people are talking about reducing energy consumption. And this is not only about you know, reducing the thermostat, it's about reducing your oil consumption, you know, walking, using your bicycles, using public transport. So, the fact that the energy prices, gasoline, diesel, natural gas, electricity are so high, is basically you know pushing the governments through you know the kind of media to say okay you know try to reduce your energy consumption. First of all, it's much better for your bill, and it's much better for the country as well. So there is kind of a general pathway, and yes, in general, I mean you know people should be encouraged if they can to reduce the thermostat by one degree, if they can, because, you know, in some households, I mean, your house may be very poorly insulated, so you can't actually reduce the thermostat because you are already struggling to heat your house. So for these houses, I mean, there should be specific programs which are actually helping them to improve the insulation of the houses. And definitely in every country, government should double down on energy efficiency energy efficiency in housing, energy efficiency also for industrial applications.
let's now look at perhaps gas storage. This was kind of a grip that Russia had over the last five months on, on Europe because they were quite low. Is there any leeway in, in terms of policy making on how to make sure that they are filled in time before the winter of, of 2022-2023? Yes, you are entirely correct. I mean, the problem with natural gas storage last year and even this year is that they were not full ahead of winter. And why were they not full? Because Gazprom, which holds some storage capacity in Europe, didn't refill them ahead of winter. So what the European Commission and also the IEA are also thinking is we need to make sure that these storage facilities are full. So it's going to be mandatory. However, I mean, for some market participants, it may sound a little bit counterintuitive right now to refill storage because when you are looking at the winter to summer spread, it's currently negative. So when you are a trader, you know, you want the price next winter, winter 2022, to be higher than the price at which you are going to inject your gas during summer. But right now the market is completely upside down and that is actually negative. So that's why the European Commission also mentioned that you know, there might be subsidies, there might be contracts for difference in order to incentivize stakeholders, uh, market players to refill storage. But that would be a big focus and there will be definitely more documents coming from the European Commission on how they need to do that. And you know, they are already thinking we need to start now to refill storage. The good news on storage is that uh, Storage has been really, really low, much lower than the five-year average at the beginning of January. Now we have moved back within the five-year average. I was checking the numbers uh, yesterday, and it's kind of improving. Also, I mean, we have been really lucky because the weather has been very mild in Europe. So if we continue like that, maybe we can actually stop picking, which I'm, I'm sure is going to make everybody happy, and therefore improving uh, the storage situation. I have to say, I mean, there is nothing like a very mild winter to help us. But in contrast, if the winter uh, in December, October is very, very cold, then we are going to be in trouble. Let us now turn further ahead until 2025, uh, which is only three years from now, but still. What are the steps that can be taken to secure the energy system until then? And which of them are perhaps the most achievable? From a priority perspective. So I mentioned energy efficiency. I think, you know, I mean, it's one thing to ask people to turn down their thermostat during, you know, this year, but I mean, we need to be more constructive. So we need absolutely to double down on the energy efficiency at all levels. That's one thing. We also need to double down on renewable. That seems to be pretty obvious. What the European Commission has in mind, however, is going to be very ambitious. So they want to install by the end of uh, 2030 about 400 gigawatt, 480 gigawatt of wind and 420 gigawatt of solar. So each of these quantities is about more than double the installed capacity in Europe. So that's a lot. But, you know, this is the price to pay in order to get there. And also additional capacity will be required to produce green hydrogen. So these are definitely priorities. But, you know, renewables is not only about wind and solar. It can be also biomass. It can be biomethane. And the advantage about biomethane is that it's the same molecule as natural gas. It's just 
bio and it's also domestic production. We are using the agricultural sector in order to produce that biomethane. So it's a win-win situation. So these are all the things which, in my opinion, can be done on the demand side, on top of keeping coal, trying to keep nuclear if possible, and then we need to turn to the supply side. And this is the whole question about, okay, how are we going to continue to get a lot of diversified supply? So, you know, the solutions on the pipeline suppliers, I mean, they are not going to be significant unless, you know, there are some significant investments in Algeria, in Azerbaijan, you need to expand the pipeline capacity, so all these things need to happen. But the crucial thing is really about LNG. And LNG, okay, we are asking for another 50 billion cubic meters for this year, but with the ambition of keeping that kind of volumes for the years to come. And in my opinion, at some point, there will be a problem because if you are an LNG supplier and you are looking at investing into a new LNG plant, you want to have a long-term contract. Otherwise, this is not worth it. And I have not got yet the signal coming from European companies, European Commission, that they are ready to commit not only for 5 to 10 years, but more than for 10, 15, maybe 20 years, because an LNG liquefaction plant, I mean, they want to be operating for 20 years. And there is this kind of dual perception that, okay, on one side, we want LNG right now, we want this LNG to be green also, cheap if possible, but we don't really know for how long we are going to need that LNG. And that, you know, in my opinion, for an LNG exporter, this might be a problem. What could electricity storage and perhaps even seasonal storage do in this regard? Are these technologies too early in their development or can a large-scale rollout of those be helpful for... They will, they will help. But, you know, we are just at the beginning, I mean, outside of, you know, pump hydro storage, I mean, we're just at the beginning of the deployment. So you need to think about demand side management, you need to think about batteries. They will be built, just going to take time. And, I mean, it, it doesn't solve also the problem of the seasonality. I mean, what people are worried about right now is I'm not going to be able to keep my house during winter. This is a critical thing. And for that, and batteries are not particularly helpful. It sounds like, especially countries in Europe that were concerned about shale gas from the US, have to reverse that stance and make compromises. Does that also include compromises in terms of the carbon neutrality goals, or is that still something that can be achieved? So the European Commission has not said anything about the fact that 50-55 or at least 55% reduction objective was gone. I, I think they want to achieve both. Nobody has really done the math on how, you know, this is going to play out in terms of CO2 emissions because, okay, you are going to be more energy efficiency, you are going to be more renewable, you are going to keep coal, less gas. Difficult to, to know exactly, but I don't think this objective should go away. I mean, we cannot afford that for this objective to go away. It's still very, very important to continue to reduce our carbon emissions. And, and because we have a carbon budget. I mean, the carbon budget is not going away because we have a crisis right now. And on US LNG, I mean, there was a big hoo-ha when, you know, uh, people in the US saw the situation in Europe thinking, hey, this is our plan. We can basically, you know, develop our LNG plants and, uh, and, and export the natural gas to Europe. Yes, but I don't think, you know, the European Commission is going to move away from their requirements in terms of this LNG has to be clean, so they are 
still going to continue to look at the environmental footprint of FMV, especially you know, on the methane emission. That, in my opinion, is not going to go away. That may make all the things quite tricky because if the European Union wants more LNG, if possible, affordable, and on top of that, you know, the greenest possible, it may not be easy to get everything. But Kasten kind of already concerned a bit of further outlook into the second half of this decade. And let's move on to perhaps a further outlook as well, until 2030. The EU aims to be energy independent from Russia well before 2030. Is this even feasible? And until when is that feasible? I think it is not going to be easy. It is potentially feasible. I mean, the thing, you know, the, the key problem is really about natural gas because right now we have a lot of pipeline gas which is coming from Russia. I mean, you cannot really move a pipeline and say, okay, this pipeline gas is going to go somewhere else. I mean, the pipelines have been laid down in order to supply Europe. You have more freedom when it comes to LNG. Something that I didn't mention, by the way, is that you know, all these targets from the European Union in terms of getting more LNG are dead if Russian LNG is sanctioned. Russian LNG right now this is about 40 billion cubic meters compared to a global traded market of LNG of 520 billion cubic meters. This is significant. If that LNG can't go anywhere, then the European Commission won't be able to attract more LNG to Europe. That's pretty much a done deal. And the second point is that there is an LNG plant in Russia currently under construction. Uh, this is a plant where Total has a, a, a shares. If that plant is also affected, I mean, this is going to make the market between now and 2025 quite tight. So that's also something to take into account. But to go back to your question, I mean, it could be feasible. It's still going to be very challenging. I mean, you know, you need to completely revamp your whole energy system much more rapidly than you have anticipated. You need to change the narrative about natural gas. Oil is a fungible market, so I mean, you know, if you really don't want to have Russian oil, that oil could go somewhere else. However, you need to understand whether that oil is going to just disappear from the market. As I mentioned, I mean, Russia is quite a significant exporter of oil, so whether we are going to have sanctions, which are going to be imposed on Russia for a very long period, or whether you know, some countries are still going to accept that Russian oil, which, by the way, is currently priced at a discount, so that might be actually good for some countries. And this is the whole question. How far will the sanctions go? I mean, are they going to be imposed eventually on all the energy products from Russia? And what happens if there is a change of, of government if Mr. Putin goes? There sounds to be a lot of need for more investments into the energy transition than already planned. But at the same time, governments are announcing more military spending. How is that going to be a competition and what are the consequences of those? I think there might indeed be a competition. I mean, we need to increase our spending in indeed the military for obvious reasons, but also, I mean, we need to double down in terms of the funding of the renewable transition. I mean, we are also going to get a certain amount of money coming back also from, you know, the, the carbon taxes, so that can be also used to be funding a certain number of, of energy projects, maybe helping the most vulnerable households. But it's true that for every single country in the European Union, right now we have been in a crisis mode for two years because of COVID. 
So, you know, there was this kind of uh, motto from President Macron, whatever it costs. It's again going to be whatever it costs in order to make sure that we are able to run ourselves, but we absolutely need to double down and to achieve our objectives in terms of energy transition on top of making sure that energy is affordable and that, you know, we are also achieving our targets in terms of energy security. It's not going to be easy. Maybe let's end on a attempt of a at least positive outlook. What are the benefits or are there any for the energy transition? And would it be daydreaming to assume that this can actually help carbon emissions reduction within the next 10 years? Or is, is that something that we now have to worry about between 2040 and 2050 to reach carbon neutrality goals until 2050? I mean, we have a carbon budget, so we still need to keep in mind that we need to reduce our carbon emissions. This is not going away. As I say, that, you know, the fact that the European Commission is doubling down on its objectives of renewable is, I mean, going in the right direction. They are also doubling down on hydrogen with the hydrogen accelerator. Energy efficiency has come back to the forefront. You know, energy efficiency was always like, yeah, we want to do that, but we are not quite sure. I mean, now it, it's really very important. So I think it's going in the right direction. Now we are looking at Europe. The question is whether this is going to be the same for the whole world. And that is still, in my opinion, a question mark. Finally, I would like to say that sometimes you discover a solution that you were not aware of before. So, you know, there might be, you know, greater achievement, more inventions, more progress in certain technologies. We thought before we are not as advanced, but in fact we are going to double down on these technologies in order to go towards this path of decarbonization. Great. Thank you very much for your time and your insights on the Picorbo and it was a pleasure to have you here. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Sciences Po Energy Podcast, recorded and produced in Paris by Philip Horster with the help of Katarina Menke, Giulio Altese, and the team of Radio German, the Sciences Po Students Radio. If you like the podcast, then feel free to leave a rating on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast. If you are an undergraduate student and you are interested in energy, then have a look at the program offered by Sciences Po.